Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen, listen for, for the, the word. word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. Uh, we are in Advent, um, and uh, today we are finally moving into some of the infancy narr- narratives, which, of course, are always beloved um, by everyone who's coming to your um, to your worship service. And so we're we're beginning these with Matthew, and so I'm going to let Alan jump in now. I, I do want to give you the uh, the the actual verses. It's it's Matthew one, and in the Revised Common Lectionary, eighteen through twenty five. But we're going to talk both of us before that. So yeah, sit down and enjoy. Yeah, thanks. You know, I think most of us, um, we sort of have a, a Charlie Brown Christmas version of the infancy narratives, and which is from taken from Luke's gospel. Matthew's gospel is very different. Um, but, you know, like the infancy narratives in Luke's gospel, the infancy narrative in Matthew's gospel serves to introduce major themes that we're going to find as we take our journey through Matthew's gospel. And, you know, last year we found that that the way Luke crafted his infancy narrative, you know, included some really fascinating um, themes that were going to be traced throughout the gospel. And I think we're going to find Matthew's version every bit as fascinating. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, as I get thinking about this in general, you know, um, Mark doesn't have an infancy nope. narrative. Neither does John. And you wonder um, why those are left out of Mark, maybe, and then when they are crafted by M- Matthew and Luke, how they are so very different. Yeah. So um, I just think it's a, I think it's fascinating. And I, I think, I, I know all the pastors out there listening know that these are very different, but our our congregations don't. Yeah, that's true. So, that's um, true. They they they're used to sort of having a harmonization oh, of it all. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that they assume that's how it is. Yeah, they're only shepherds in Luke's infancy narrative, and they're at at the at the at the birth of Jesus. Exactly. And and the wise guys, as I call the kings, the wise guys only show up only show up later in Matthew, uh, in Matthew mm-hmm. and only in Matthew. Um, yeah, it's a study. It's an interesting study in gospel origins when you look at the way all four gospels uh, begin. And you know, I think there's there's um, unique tradition probably right. that both Matthew and Luke drew on. Um, uh, but I think there's a fair amount of their own composition. Right. I think I think they're both composing the infancy narratives as an introduction to the gospel. As well, a whole. I think it's important for theology of Christ, right? Uh, this whole, it, you know, in both cases, it's a, it's important for Luke's theology of who right. Jesus is, and right. and for yeah, Matthew. Yeah, as well. exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Okay, so get us going here. So much of the interpretation of the opening chapters of Matthew, as well as our gospel lesson for today, begins with the very first verse of the book, which I would translate the book of the story of Jesus, Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. And that is a much broader interpretation than I have read that in the past. I think um, I think our Bible says the genealogy of. Most English translations do. Uh, there are a number of them that don't. Um, and, you know, I find it strange that although several recent critical commentaries uh, make it clear that the verse is meant to be read as a title for the whole book mm-hmm. of Matthew. Um, the Revised Standard Version, the New American Standard, the NIV, the New RSV, the English Standard Version, New, Ling- New Living Translation, the CEB, they all interpret this verse as a heading for the genealogy yeah. of Jesus. Yeah, that's how I've read it. But 
guess what we tend to do? Oh, it's not a big deal and cross it off. Mm -hmm. if, you, if, it, if you read it this way, you better pay attention. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Because what we're going to find is that Messiah and son of David and son of Abraham are going to be important themes for understanding Matthew's gospel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And much of, much of the question here hinges on the interpretation of the phrase biblos geneseos. Right. And, you know, because genesis occurs again in Matthew 18 in a clear reference to the birth of Jesus, right. many have used that as an argument that Matthew 1.1 refers to the record of his genealogy or his origin. Mm -hmm. But Davies and Allison in their, in their three-volume commentary make a persuasive case that Biblos is used in the contemporary literature of that day as the general title of a work and not as the heading for a genealogy. Right. And they compare the use of genesis in the book of Genesis, in, in the Septuagint, version, which um, actually um, uh, in, in Genesis 2-4, it translates the phrase, Ela Toledot, which is sort of a narrative marker. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. These are the generations mm -hmm. of Terah. Mm -hmm. right. These are the generations of Isaac. These are the generations of Jacob. These are the generations of Joseph. Those are narrative markers. And really, there, there are several... And there are several English translations that, that treat it this way. The New Century Version, the Message, the New American Bible, Revised Edition, the International Reader's Version. Um, really, I think it should be translated as the story. This is the story mm -hmm. of how the heavens and the earth were created. This is the story of, oh, of yes, yes, um, yes. Uh, Terah, which is basically an introduction to the story of Abra right. Abraham. Right. Same thing with, with Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And so um, that's where I get the, the, the translation. This is the book of the story of Jesus, mm -hmm. Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. You know, just when I'm thinking of the English word story, I wonder if people find offense at story which implies not a factual fiction, truth yeah, yeah. Um, and a fiction if you will when we do tend to have people out there that want to take this word for word truth well and there are some translations uh, like the niv and the ceb and the nlt that that actually use account also Mm. for 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 this okay. and in 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 genesis and so you know you could you could say that this is the book of the account of jesus messiah son of david son of abraham um mm. I, to me story doesn't mean it's true or not true story just means this is a narrative this right. is matthew's narrative of right. jesus okay yeah. i like i actually really like story i just was thinking that i could see pushback from some sure folks yeah sure sure so then from this perspective, the title of Matthew Gos Matthew's gospel points us to key themes, in including, as I mentioned, Jesus as Messiah, uh, Jesus as son of David, and the goal of his mission to bring salvation to Gentiles, which is, I think, um, encapsulated in the phrase son of Abraham. Mm -hmm. Now, although Jesus Christ, and that's the way it re reads in Greek, Yesu Christu, Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ was likely, by the time Matthew wrote his gospel, on the way to becoming a personal name so that people, when they referred to Jesus, they referred to him as Jesus Christ. Um, the fact that it's followed by Son of David, which is a key title for Jesus in Matthew's gospel, and particularly in Matthew's infancy narrative, yes, yes. points toward Matthew's emphasis on Jesus as the Messiah from the line of David. And so I think we should treat Christos here as a title, the Messiah. 
Uh, and the son of David obviously is, is again, a reference to Jesus' identity as the one who stands in the line of David. Right. And that Jesus is also called son of Abraham mm-hmm. not only indicates that Jesus is a true Israelite, but also recalls the promise to Abraham that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, mm-hmm. as Genesis 12 puts it, Genesis 12, 3 puts it. And it prepares us, I think for the commission that we're going to hear at the end of the gospel mm-hmm. to make disciples of all nations in Matthew 28, 19. Mm, yeah. So this, this idea of a, of a mission to the Gentiles is really going to become a significant theme in Matthew's gospel. Mm, yeah, that's, and it's interesting. I, I was thinking of this terminology as well because I do think, I do think it needs some explanation. I think people, mm-hmm. particularly again, and I think a lot of our listeners in Advent, sometimes are folks that maybe haven't been at church, and they start mm-hmm. coming before Christmas, and then they hear this in, these words that they don't understand. Sure, so, sure. I had been working with some confirmation students that just found this huh. awkward. Yeah, and yeah. Well, what do they mean, son of David? What do they mean, son of Abraham? Right, so, right. Um, I think this is. In, I mean, I just I think this is particularly interesting that um, Matthew uses this. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. And it's a unique emphasis in Matthew's gospel. The, the emphasis on Jesus as the son of David and son of Abraham uh, is reinforced. Um, uh, son of David is, is, a, is, a, is a unique theme in Matthew's gospel. Mm-hmm. And, and the fact that Jesus is, the son, is son of David and the son of Abraham is reinforced by the genealogy in, in, chapter, in, in verses yes. 2 through 17. Yes, it is. In Matthew's genealogy, um, Matthew starts with Abraham, whereas right. Luke, in Luke, Adam is the original progenitor. Um, and, and Abraham is the one, as we remember, whom God called to leave his country, his kindred, and his father's house, and the one whom God promised to make a, a great nation. Right. And again, I think this lays the groundwork for Matthew's emphasis on God's ultimate redemptive purpose for the whole human family. Mm-hmm. Now, from Abraham, then Matthew's genealogy runs through David, which again reinforces the claim that's so important to Matthew's gospel that Jesus is the son of David, and that's a messianic claim in Matthew's mm-hmm. gospel. Um, and what we might note also that of all New Testament writers, Matthew lays the most stress on this idea that Jesus is son of David. So mm-hmm. that's, that's going to be important in Matthew's gospel. You know, I keep thinking of, some of my more well-versed parishioners who say, oh, well, this means that Matthew is this Jewish gospel. Right. <laughs> right? How do you respond to that? Well, I respond to that in two ways. Number one, um, most of Matthew's scripture quotations come from the Septuagint, just like Luke. And number two, Matthew Matthew looks forward to a, a, a mission that is going to extend to all nations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there may be some very Jewish features of Matthew's gospel. I would agree with that. But, you know, the whole New Testament is sort of a mixture of Jewish and Gentile um, uh, influences. And, mm-hmm. and while, of course, the Hebrew Bible is the most important emphasis, as well as the life and teaching of Jesus in, in, in the New Testament, um, um, I don't think it's that simple to say that Matthew is the Jewish gospel and Luke yeah. is the Gentile gospel. Because I bet there are others that have these folks. You know, they 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 they've they're fairly knowledgeable, but so they come with this. Oh well, I know that Matthew's this. You know, this is a Jewish gospel, and I I think that's that oversimplification kind of. Kind of ruins the broader message, I think, of the of yeah, the gospel. Yeah, it's important you know. to pay attention to the ex- the explicit themes that Matthew yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, highlights for us. Yeah. All right, moving on. 
Um, so we must note also that Jesus' genealogy in Matthew runs through Joseph, not Mary. And therefore, we must conclude that by adopting the child who Joseph will learn was conceived by the Holy Spirit, then Jesus also becomes a true son of David. And this is something that the genealogy stresses as well. Mm-hmm. So all of this is groundwork then for not only understanding our gospel lesson for this week, but indeed the whole gospel of Matthew. And in our lesson for this week, Matthew introduces the story of Jesus' birth. Now, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. And we should note here that Genesis is translated as birth, and that's different from the way I'm translating Matthew, Genesis and Matthew 1.1, but this is due mainly to the context of the passage. Mm-hmm. It's very clear in Matthew 1.18 that Genesis refers right. to Jesus' birth. So how, how does this birth happen? Well, Matthew tells us then that when, when his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be pregnant from or by the Holy Spirit in verse 18. And at this point, there's some things that Matthew wants to establish about the birth of Jesus. First, he wants us to know that his mother Mary, notice the phrasing, his mother Mary, Mm -hmm. was already betrothed or engaged to Joseph. Now, although our information about this practice comes from rabbinic sources that date later than the first century, they point to an idea that seems consistent with Matthew's purpose, Mm -hmm. that the betrothal was equivalent of marriage in the Jewish Mm -hmm. world of that day. And it typically lasted about a year. Uh, Second, Matthew reports that Mary and Joseph had not yet come together. And he does this in order to insist that there is no way that Joseph could be construed to be the actual Mm -hmm. father of Jesus. And then thirdly, Matthew tells us that Joseph knows that Mary is pregnant. So we have a problem here. (laughs) Right, right. So we have these, and and we have these things that are just, are are given to us here that we right. In the narrative. Okay. Yep, yep. Now, there has been considerable debate surrounding the idea that Mary's child was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Um, and, you know, many have suggested that this was actually sort of a develop, sort of a developmental approach to this. They started by connecting Jesus' um, identity as the Son of God with the resurrection, and then they pushed it back to the baptism, and then they pushed it back to his conception, and the spirit is involved mm-hmm. in all three. Mm-hmm. That's Raymond Brown, in his intro- and he's, he's got a little book called The Introduction Christolo- to New Testament Christology. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see how he would get that argument because there's really very right. little emphasis on a connection between Jesus' uh, miraculous conception and his being the Son of God in the New Testament. There's only one verse in Galatians 4.4 that even connects them in any way, and mm-hmm. really it's not a direct connection even there. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, it's sort of a big mystery as to if, if there's such, I mean, if, if Jesus is truly conceived by the Holy Spirit, why is there absolutely, why is the rest of the New Testament silent That's about really it? That's really interesting because it's such a important part of the broader theology of the church. Theologians that, make a big deal out of it really in terms big of deal. Jesus' identity as really Son of God. Really big deal. So yeah. when you point that out, that this really isn't that big of a deal in the scripture, um, yep. it is an interesting, and, and, and I think that's a, a legitimate argument that Brown makes then. I, I would say, you know, I don't know that we have to necessarily follow Raymond Brown on this. I think, though, that it is, I think it's a, it, it, it gives us pause in making too big a jump from um, conceived by the Holy Spirit to Jesus is the Son of God, because the New Testament doesn't connect those dots the way mm-hmm. theologians have done in the church. Yeah, yeah, that's um, 
That's important. It Thank is. you. Yeah, Thank it you. is. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the reason why I don't know that we have to follow Brown's reconstruction is that there is biblical precedent for Matthew to take the step of saying that Mary's child was conceived by the Holy Spirit as a theological affirmation mm-hmm. of sure. Jesus' identity. Uh, and we have the, for example, we have the precedent of the idea of prophets or servants of God being chosen from mm-hmm. the womb yep. that was familiar in that day. Jeremiah is right. said to have been chosen from the right. womb in Jeremiah 1.5, the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 49.6, and Paul, and Paul speaks about it in Galatians 1.15. Furthermore, the work of the Spirit was closely associated with the root of Jesse and the servant in Isaiah, and, and especially in Isaiah 61.1. And as well, we find this in various messianic mm-hmm. figures in extra-biblical literature. So this idea of, of someone who was coming from God and was going to serve God um, uh, being... Um, uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit wasn't totally outside the realm of of what what Matthew could conceive. I mean, there was some there was some basis for that in mm-hmm. in uh, the Hebrew Bible. Yeah, I I I see that. And that 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 would make I think by having that in there, folks reading it that would have this background probably would identify with yes, this. Yes, yes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there was precedent for this. Yep. Yeah. Um, okay, so then we move on with our story. Yeah, Matthew continues to tell the unfolding story. In verse 19, he says, Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to divorce her quietly. Now, we should note that the idea of righteous or righteousness, and the Greek word is dikaios and dikaiosune, mm-hmm. is also a major theme in Matthew's gospel. Mm-hmm. We're going to fa- come back to that over and over again. And in fact, Jesus insists that his disciples follow the way of righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees by fulfilling not only the letter of the law, but the spirit in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. And we find, you know, in, in Matthew chapter 5, he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And he finally, you know, winds up with, you know, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor, but you shall hate your enemy. And I say, love your enemies. And so the whole mm-hmm. spirit of the law really is summed up right. in that right. in that demand to love your neighbor as well as your enemy. Right. So we should note then that I, I think what we find is that, you know, Jesus... Um, I'm sorry, what we find is that Matthew then presents Joseph as an exemplar of this true righteousness that Jesus advocates in Matthew's gospel. And the reason for that is because Joseph displays this true righteousness by the way he responds when he learns that Mary was pregnant. Mm -hmm. You know, technically, legally, based on the Torah, he had grounds to bring public charges of adultery against her, which would likely have resulted in her humiliation. Right. But Matthew sees in Joseph's decision to divorce her quietly and thus spare her the humiliation of a public accusation as an example of what it means to be truly righteous by following the spirit of the Torah, which in Matthew's gospel, Jesus will later identify as justice, mercy, Mm -hmm. and faithfulness in Matthew 23, 13. So Joseph demonstrates that he's truly righteous by his practice of mercy. So... I haven't gotten to Calvin yet, but I, I'm going to put in this little piece here because Calvin also kind of associates this with kind of a masculine identity, huh. which is really interesting and his part, but saying that that within this isn't this kind of, of sappy um, 
concern. He calls it womanly. Really? Yes. Yes. He goes this kind of womanly, <laughs> womanly compassion for her, but ra- but rather is this kind of masculine right thing to do. I, I, it was a really. Mm. It was a really dated, obviously, yeah. observation, but I thought yeah. that was an interesting for so for in the 16th century in Calvin's view, this righteousness has a bit of a, a male, mm. a masculine uh, identity with it, which was interesting. To well, me. I would see, I would see the you know the, Joseph's character and the practice of true righteousness in Matthew's gospel as a as a sign of true inner strength. Yeah, not necessarily gender specific <laughs> right right and i mean yeah well and it could have been just the language used but the yeah. kind of assumptions that that a woman might do this because of just great compassion but mm-hmm. he didn't do it so much out of compassion as for righteousness which he mm. really wanted to delineate as being different well it's interesting because one of the chief one of the uh, I, you know beginning uh, coming from augustine and and uh, some other church fathers probably calvin was familiar with the idea that it was popular to think that actually joseph was righteous in that he was intending to actually go through with a public divorce proceeding uh, because that was what Uh, the law required yes and so he was going to be righteous in that he was going to follow the letter of the law but i think matthew is trying to show i mean matthew clearly emphasizes the spirit of the law right in the sermon on the mount and, yes. and elsewhere and 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 that's a theme in matthew and i think that's what i think G- matthew's sort of introducing that by by showing joseph as an exemplar yeah, of this true yeah. righteousness so you can see then as calvin's making this kind of he's just not because he just felt sorry for her but this was the true intent of the law i think that makes sense mm-hmm. in this context of what calvin has Surely. said so interesting yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. all right um now you know, some people might still think that, well, the, the, to, the, the Torah demanded that Mary be stoned to death if she was convicted of adultery. Right. That was no longer practiced in the first century. Um, and so, and, and, you know, the fact that Joseph decided to divorce her quietly, even divorcing her, divorcing her more quietly would have required two witnesses. So it would not have spared her all humiliation. It would have spared her public humiliation. Mm. So, um, what happens next? Now, God comes in That's to, right. play, uh, to play. And <laughs> at this point, really, the silent actor in the narrative, God, intervenes. Um, Matthew says, but just when he had resolved to do this, that is, put Mary away privately, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Mm-hmm. And that's Matthew 1, 20 and 21. So the angel instructs J- Joseph to take Mary as his wife, predicts that she will bear a son, and instructs him to name the child Jesus. And of course, in that day, the right of naming belonged Mm -hmm. to the quote unquote father. So by naming Jesus, then Joseph, who's identified as son of David here, right? right. He's Mm -hmm. identified several times as son of David in in, in Mm -hmm. this first chapter. But here again, he's identified as Joseph, son of David. By, by, By naming Jesus, Joseph claims or adopts Jesus as his own and thus makes Jesus also a, a son, son of, of David, David in Matthew's uh, reading of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting um, um, feature that, that Davies and Allison bring out, and that is that there's a, uh, an interesting comparison between uh, Jesus and Moses. And um, uh, 
one of the things you find that there's several several points of comparison, but one of the things you find is that both Joseph and Amram, Moses' father, are instructed in a dream, and Joseph by an angel of the Lord. Um, um, Amram, God stands beside Amram in his sleep, uh, according to extra biblical literature. And so there's an interesting comparison between mm-hmm. Jesus and Moses. And, and a lot of New Testament commentators will see a sort of at least implicit comparison yes. between Jesus and, and Moses, or right. at least sort of an implicit theme in Matthew that Jesus is fulfilling the role of right, Moses. Right, right. Yeah. And I've, I've actually heard several sermons uh, to that end. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, a, I, I think it's an Again, somebody listening because here's Moses, the bringer of the law. Here's Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the law. What a cool kind of comparison. I, I, I assume this is a, a technique of Matthew particularly, right? Yes. Yeah, this is a theme in Matthew. We don't find it elsewhere, but this is a theme. And this is a, mm-hmm. it's, an, it's not really overt, right. but there's an implicit kind of, it's implicit in a variety of ways in mm-hmm. Matthew's gospel. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Um. So we had uh, asked, uh, what what um, does this name Jesus mean? If you want to, yeah. Understand. So the angel explains the significance of the name Jesus or Jesus, meaning salvation, and likely uh, this explanation is based on a traditional association with the name um, Yeshua, which is Joshua, uh, as well as the noun Yeshua, which is the noun for salvation in Hebrew. And so the angel, based on this traditional association with some Hebrew, uh, with the Hebrew name for Joshua and, and the Hebrew noun for salvation, predicts then that Jesus will save his people from their sins. And in Matthew, Jesus will do this by his preaching and teaching. There's that Moses mm-hmm. type, sort of that Moses comparison, as well by his, by his healing miracles mm-hmm. and ultimately by his death on the cross. And so this brings kind of a foreshadowing of Jesus' ministry as well as his death into Matthew's mm-hmm. infancy narrative. And, you know, we, we recall that Luke did the same thing when uh, Simeon said yes. that Jesus would be the cause of division and a sword would pierce Mary's right, heart, right? Right, right, right. Now, who his people are, you know, when it says he will save his people from their sins, uh, who his people are in Matthew's gospel is an open question. I think one could certainly read this in terms of the Jewish people just on the surface of things, mm-hmm. but by the end of, Ma- of, of, of Matthew's gospel, the focus of salvation is going to widen to include all nations. Mm-hmm. And we're going to see some significant uh, text in Matthew that um, point away from the Jewish people and, and toward the Gentiles yeah. as the ones who are going to fulfill the true righteousness that Jesus came to bring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is, again, interesting when... You have people that come with this assumption, yep. right? But <sighs> kind of unfair too, right? When you think about that Matthew's the gospel that most people know. Yeah. So, um, yeah. okay. So we have um, it's kind of a beginning of some formulaic um, quotes. By yes, yes. In Matthew. fact, there are 10 what are called formula quotes, uh, formula quotations in Matthew's gospel. Uh, they're called that because they all have some version of the formula. This took place to fulfill that which was spoken or written by, you know, okay. saying. Mm-hmm. And, and then comes the quotation. And actually, five of these formula quotations are in 
Matthew 1 and 2 in his infancy narrative. Mm. So it's, it's a very significant um, uh, characteristic of Matthew's gospel. And so in Matthew 1, 22 and 23, we read, All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Look, the virgin shall become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God, God is, is with us. Yeah. Uh, and, and really, this points us to another of Matthew's significant themes, and that is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the hopes for God's salvation, especially as elaborated by the mm-hmm. prophets. Mm-hmm. And this fulfillment theme is going, to, is going to be resound really throughout Matthew's gospel. But it's very, it's very strongly emphasized in these first two chapters mm-hmm. as a way of pointing us toward that theme. Okay, yeah. Um, and so we, you know... I, you have in the notes here that we, you know, we talked about Emmanuel before. We did so a couple of years you... ago, yeah, and and we talked about it in the context of dealing with Isaiah chapter nine um, two years ago. But and when we looked at the context of the quotation from Isaiah seven fourteen, I suggested then that the Emmanuel child in Isaiah probably referred originally to an heir to David's throne born in that time. And most biblical scholars identify it with Hezekiah. But, and there's a significant qualification here, the fact that Hezekiah's reign ultimately failed to live up to the hopes and promises articulated um, not only in Isaiah 7 through 9, but elsewhere throughout the Hebrew Bible regarding the son of David who was going to come, um, led to the idea that one day there would be one who would come who would fulfill them mm-hmm. uh, in, in the true sense of the word. And so this, of course, is what made it possible that Matthew could interpret Isaiah 7.14 with reference to Jesus' mm-hmm. birth. Because, I mean, we call it the messianic expectation. I hesitate to use that phrase right. because it, it, it makes it sound like there was this um, very specific, very uniform idea about a Messiah. And really, in, in, in the Judaisms, plural, of Jesus' day, there, were, there was a variety of right. messianic expectations. Right. But in general, this idea that, that every son of David that came up and, and raised people's hopes, uh, and Hezekiah is one of the you know the Hebrew Bible speaks of him as one of as one of the yes. sons of David who most did what was right in the sight of right, the Lord yeah most in in I guess most nearly imitated David in in doing what was right in the sight of the Lord nevertheless the fact that he failed right. you know the fact that he he the fact that he lived like David raised the expectations the fact that he failed however delayed those expectations and sort of uh, led to this um, hope that there would become that there would be right. one who would come to fulfill them the, right. to fulfill the promises of the Hebrew Bible and I think Matthew is 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 reading so and the and the issue here here is which direction is things are, are things moving here are we moving from Isaiah predicting this right. event to Matthew saying, oh, look, see, it happened. Yeah. Or are we moving from Matthew's conviction about who Jesus was back to yes. Isaiah? I and I think it's the latter. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, the, the miraculous conception of Jesus does not rest on the notion that Matthew saw it as predicted by the prophet Isaiah. Mm-hmm. Matthew has this conviction of the miraculous conception of Jesus, and he connects it with right. Isaiah 7.14 um, as a scriptural explanation for his, his conviction yes. about who Jesus yes. was. Yes, yes. 
And so basically, Matthew sees Jesus as the final fulfillment of the one who would truly be Emmanuel, or God who is with us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And here, I think we have only a hint. And I want to emphasize this in Matthew's gospel. We have only a hint that Jesus' miraculous conception relates to the idea that Jesus could be identified later as the son of the living God. Mm -hmm. And likely, Matthew means it in a way that probably even transcends Peter's confession in the original situation in which Peter meant it. I don't think Peter understood Jesus right. to be oh, more right. than a I human agree. figure. I agree. Right? I agree. But Matthew has this Matthew has this little I think he doesn't stress this a lot, but I think Matthew has this idea of of Jesus as the son of God because think about it. Most of the of the letters of Paul have already been written by the time Matthew mm-hmm. writes his right. gospel. So the idea of Jesus as son of God was already firmly established in right. the early church. Yeah. Yeah. So so Matthew kind of works it in as almost a clue in a very subtle way, which is fi- I think intriguing to me that Matthew especially wouldn't uh, make more of a, a an explicit uh, emphasis right. of this in his gospel. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Mm. So, and that this is an important theme is Matthew in Matthew's gospel is confirmed, I think, by Matt, Jesus' promise in, Ma- in Matthew twenty eight twenty. Yes. I am with you always, mm-hmm. uh, and thus the birth of Jesus as God with us, mm-hmm. and at the beginning, and Jesus' promise, I am with you always at the end, serve as the oh, bookends, wow. marking That's the really beginning awesome. of Matthew's story of Jesus as Messiah and marking its conclusion, wow. and and this theme then of. God with God is with us is, is an important, really important theme in Matthew's what, what, gospel. Really, what a beautiful construction! It is. You know? It's incredible. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Now the the, the passage concludes then uh, with with um, Matthew's recounting that when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, so he obeys the angel of the Lord. Verse twenty five gives us an interesting sort of. Side note, but he had no marital relations with her until she had given birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. This wasn't something that the angel had commanded him. This was something that Joseph did. And I know that church fathers and theologians throughout the ages have probably spilled a lot of ink in trying to explain why Joseph did that. We don't really know, um, but we. I think Matthew's point is, again, to remind us, look, folks, Joseph, there's no way Joseph could have right. been the actual father right. of Jesus. Right. So I, I realize this has been a rather lengthy treatment of, of our lesson today, but I've tried to emphasize some of the important themes that we're going to encounter really throughout this year as we journey through Matthew's gospel. And, and primary here are the themes about Jesus' identity. He is Messiah. He is son of David. He is the one who will save people from their mm-hmm. sins, and he is God with us. Wow. And thank you, because I think this was important. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to see how Calvin took apart this passage from Matthew and what what uh, emphases he had. And so, uh, Christy, um, uh, lead our discussion. Yeah, so I also went back to look at the the genealogies back to verse 1, and and like Alan said, um, it it really starts there, and Calvin has pages and pages of stuff, so I really just stuck with his um, commentaries for today. Um, Lots of discussion. It's um, four 
for Calvin and as as Alan said for him, it was important um, to understand this for the entire entire gospel of Matthew. So um, I wanted to break down some of the things that Calvin said. Um, and uh, one of the interesting pieces is, of course, how Calvin understood the relationship between Matthew and Luke as having a truth about Christ. Now, remember, even though Calvin's going to spend some time pulling apart what Matthew says separate from Luke, he's still in the mind that these have to agree. Mm-hmm. And um, as are many people in, mm-hmm. in 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 many churches, and even in our context today. Yeah, and yet. I found his analysis of Matthew and the uniqueness of it pretty sophisticated. So, um, and he's asking the big question of why do both of these gospel writers include a genealogy and that they were different. Mm -hmm. And he does make the point of why would they rehash the exact same thing? And I thought that was interesting. Um, But he, he begins with the assumption of the day that Matthew traced the line of Joseph in part to prove that he came from the same tribe as Mary. Um, So his point was um, here that uh, Joseph was not the father of Jesus. Um, and some people had argued at the day that because it was in there, that maybe he was the father. Um, and some people were confused about the Immaculate Conception, which it was a heresy of the day as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but he goes to explain that to, uh, to know that Mary and Joseph to be a married couple was legitimate. The law said that every man must marry in his own tribe. So including the gene- mm-hmm. in, in Calvin's world, including the genealogy of Joseph, automatically would have tied him to Mary. Mm. So, and that would have confirmed the son of David, even though he wasn't actually the father. So I I, think about my take on genealogies as sort of a new Testament historian is that, you know, because of the exile, there's no way to reconstruct a, a genealogy accurately after the exile. All the records were destroyed. In fact, I would say that First Chronicles, which very likely has a post-exilic origin, you know, the, f- the first 10 chapters of First Chronicles are just right. lists of names. That's probably the function that First Chronicles served was to try to prov- provide a sort right. of gen- a reconstructed genealogy. Well, and you know that they were pretty well kept orally, I'm quite mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. However... Um, even then, oral histories tend to forget one here, there, mm-hmm. over the over the years, and so who pops up? Who do you need to remember? And we do see some of the things very similar, right? You have these places where it's like, okay, all the people are there's there. some names that overlap. Yeah, That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, this was so interesting. So instead of you know Alan pointing out this whole adoption piece of Joseph adopting Jesus, here it's just. Well, they would have known because of Joseph, who was the true son of David, right? Because he was (laughs) the male, but would have then, because he would have married within the same tribe, it would have... Mary had to be the son, a a, a daughter of David as well, so to speak, right? So in trying to make sense of this all... Um, one, he, he does note, the evangelists only speak of what they knew in their day. Um, and so that's an interesting point. And, um, another thing is he points out that, um... Tying Mary and Joseph both to the king of David is important, but that it was so far removed into Babylonia that the royalness had kind of lost its significance. Mm. So there was no wealth, no gaining. Well, I mean, that makes sense with the, with, with the uh, circumstances of Mary and Joseph. Exactly. They certainly weren't living as aristocrats. Exactly. Um, 
Second, one of the other things he point out is Matthew's genealogy, genealogy in terms of legality um, and uh, kind of has this, uh, um, that, that Matthew's point is that he's really just to, has fewer people in order to aid the reader's memory and that there's a legal genealogy and a natural genealogy and that Matthew's is really mm. more just about the legal sense of it and who really matters at the end of the day. Um, <laughs> and finally, he does say that despite being different, they do agree with each other. Of course, they have to, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> um, but that Luke goes in reverse. Matthew starts at the beginning. Matthew starts with Abraham and Luke with Adam. And I did think it was interesting. He did note because of what Luke was trying to do in the uniqueness of his gospel, hmm. he started with Adam, wow. which I thought was an interesting yeah. point yeah. for Calvin to make. I would say, and and the fact that Luke starts his genealogy with Adam is a, is unique to, to Luke, and it, it does relate to Luke's presentation of yeah. Jesus. Yeah. So what's Calvin, he's trying to synthesize them, recognizes they're not the same, and mm-hmm. recognizes that they each have an agenda. So I like that. We get that's, the beginning of that's it. Ahead of that's ahead yeah. of his time. That's ahead of his time for that he day. Doesn't, he's more interested in uniting them, but recognizes they're different voices. Mm-hmm. So I thought that's cool. Um so why is Matthew different? Why is it different than Luke? Well, he believes that he starts with Abraham because Matthew's gospel um, has to consider the covenant. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where Abraham is the seed. And also there is a need to connect David with Solomon, whereas Luke emphasizes Nathan. Mm. Um, and, and as he goes into this genealogy, and that really has to do with, again, um, um, what what happens is that starts to break down um he claims that matthew again using the natural the, the the legal genealogy luke uses the natural lineages and he means that the legal one leads to the throne of salathiel who is a the grandson of Jeho- jehoiakim and uh then his um remember he was killed his son takes over for a few months um on the kingdom of Judah, and then is completely deposed and sent to Babylonia. And so, Salathiel, and so I found, I found that uh, Michelangelo, if he was Sistine Chapel, has those little um, frescoes of the, the genealogy, the, the family of, of Christ. And, and Michelangelo has this, has him on here, mm. along with um, um, his family going through. So, uh, and so I think it's kind of an interesting piece there that at least Michelangelo recognized this genealogy is a piece of it here, this Matthew version as opposed to the Luke yeah. version yeah. on the on the frescoes. Um, but uh, you can see that there is this discrepancy here about who is the father of Salathiel because for Luke he mentioned some someone completely different. Mm-hmm. But th- this is really... Th- Calvin got very caught up on this. This was really important for him. Now, in in, in the end, but, but then as he comes to the conclusion of this all, he says, look, despite these differences, um, the purpose is to show that Jesus came from the line of kings. Surely. So. Surely. Another explanation from Calvin is that Matthew wanted to stick to the 14 groupings and therefore left out some people, whereas Luke included them. You know, I find this, uh, again, I find this incredibly ahead of his time because most New Testament historians who aren't tied to sort of a, a particular view of biblical inerrancy or something like that are going to say the same thing now. Mm-hmm. They're going to say, you know, Matthew is being selective about his genealogy mm-hmm. because he's making it conform to this 
set this pattern of three sets of mm-hmm. 14 generations mm-hmm. that, and so this is very much ahead of his time for calvin yeah it, I, it is it is it's really it's it's an interesting piece and so um as i said uh he has this kind of vision for these three um this threefold this threefold kind of uh, right. version of it that he had you know this understanding of what what he was trying to do within those three that those had three specific kind of time periods right. about about well and Matthew reiterates it you know he says um, in his genealogy at the conclusion mm-hmm. so all the generations from Abraham to David are fourteen generations right. and from David to the deportation right. fourteen de- generations yeah. and from the deportation to Messiah fourteen generations right and as those having really important um, kind of epics if you will within the, the development of the of of God's family I mm-hmm. think is is really what he's kind of after um, so. All of that said, in many, many pages, uh, he finally delves into the text of, um, of the birth story. After he does all of this uh, genealogy kind of background, he actually begins to dig into it verse by verse. And um, he, has, he, he begins with a heading entitled, The Book of the Generation, which he claims and he acknowledges is a debate among the interpreters. So it's kind of the same problem Alan was laying out for us is what does Cal, or what does Matthew really mean by that title? And well and actually there are some older English versions that that use that translation the book of the generation mm-hmm. of of Jesus which I don't I would be okay with that as a tra- as a translation mm-hmm. because it sort of it sort of mimics that pattern of these are the generations in Genesis which I think Matthew is is consciously calling on mm-hmm. and so for example the Geneva Bible the King James version mm-hmm. uh, the American Standard version these these all um, use this yeah. translation yeah and he didn't go into detail about who is debating this or anything which I would have been kind of interesting he makes a couple of notes um, that in Matthew 1 um, one two mentions that Jacob is the father of Judah and his brothers, and um, for Calvin it was significant to mention the twelve brothers. Um, and he also com- comments on the omission, omission of Ishmael and Esau. Um, so he does. Um, um, he he thinks there's oh, of course there's some impurities in the genealogy. Um, and that's good, and that's good. And this is where he mentions, of course, the women, although in this particular place, I think he only really mentions Bathsheba. Yeah. Um, well, and it, I find it interesting that, you know, for example, Rahab, who was a Canaanite from Jericho, is is mentioned. Ruth, who was a Moabite. A Moabite. She's the right. great-grandmother of David. Right. You know, and so we have these 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 women who play a significant role mm-hmm. in the in the lineage of the son of David right. Uh, right. who are actually Gentiles and and a lot of New Testament historians today will say that this points also toward Matthew's um, uh, the, uh, theme about uh, the mission to the Gentiles right yeah I, I think so and um, I, he didn't spend a lot of time on on Ruth or Rahab that I saw, but I did see that he talked about Bathsheba and that, mm-hmm. that, and that again, and of course he turns it to a, a Reformation commentary, emphasizing that God gave no weight to human merits. Of course, <laughs> of right? Of course, right. So in verse one twelve, Calvin references the Babylonian captivity, um, and this. Um, Again, was that transition from royalty to poverty I'd mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. But I thought that was an interesting point because um, um, 
he wants to make kind of a big deal about what it meant to be in a Babylonian captivity. And so he was looking at the translation of this Greek word, um, metoikasia, um, which um, he said was, prior to Erasmus, was interpreted as transmigration. Erasmus rendered it exile. And so in his mind, Erasmus is doing it a disfavor because mm. really that word, in Calvin's opinion, um, meant that they had to change their habitation and become residents of another place. In other words, lose their identity. Right. And Which I, I guess you could say, what is exile if not that? But and and so right, maybe maybe right. maybe Erasmus is providing sort of a humanist interpretation of of the word as opposed to a strict right. translation. I don't know. Well, I don't know. I mean, exile. I think yes, but maybe there's a sense of <laughs> that you are still the foreigner somewhere else. I mean, here he's saying that they were supposed to be changing their identity. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, really? Um, huh. uh, so kind of an interesting point that he makes there is that uh to be there means you have lost and i think it's in turn this kind of royalty concept you have lost all the trappings mm. of of who you he were. seems very much concerned to sort of strip the whole theme of davidic royalty from from the genealogy well and, and yeah. part of this is i think um because you're still seeing the roman catholic church mm -hmm. in so much display of wealth mm -hmm. uh and so to be able to um make sure that we understand that Jesus is human and is as average as everybody else mm -hmm. is very important here. And yet, again, not so, average, right? Again, sort of anti-Catholic uh, mm -hmm. polemic I here. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, finally, Calvin points out that Jesus was to be called Christ and that this word was the full rest of restoration of lost salvation. Mm. So, um, so I think there's also a thing there of this total depravity that comes out too with the human state that sure. he's also trying to point out. Okay, so then he goes into the actual birth story and there's nothing new about Calvin's assessment of the birth story particularly, um, but he does try to justify with 16th century overtones why Joseph responded the way he did to Mary's pregnancy. Like I mentioned earlier, not of mere compassion, but of out of leniency, not wanting Mary to face the fullness of the crime. As if that's a weakness. <laughs> it's a weakness, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then when the angel came in the dream, Calvin acknowledged that this is one of the ordinary means of revelation and it differs from common dreams with, and is without ambiguity. But he emphasizes that the angel called Joseph mm -hmm. a son of David, reminding him that he is part of the promise of the coming Messiah. Yeah. Again, this is stuff we've already kind of heard. In terms of the name, now this is a little interesting. Calvin spends some time confronting apparently both a historical and contemporary notion of his, of his that the word Jesus was derived from Yahweh. <laughs> I, I've never heard of that. That's interesting. <laughs> the root for the name Jesus, says Calvin, comes from Hebrew to save and is not the same as Yahweh. Um, those who tie it to Yahweh claim that Jesus could not have a name that a human could possess as it would lessen who Jesus was. It would, um, the human connection to Jesus would tarnish it. They wanted to elevate Jesus as being of God, so they wanted the name to be from God, and they actually tried to reconstruct this. Mm. And he doesn't tell us who, so I'm talking kind of generally. Apparently, right. that's a pretty well-known heresy mm. that he was confronting, though. I will say this, you know, that... So Yahweh in the Hebrew Bible is translated with kurios in the Septuagint. Mm -hmm. And, of course, 
the, the central confession of the New Testament is Jesus is Kyrios, mm-hmm. Jesus is Lord. So that that title is transferred to Jesus in right. the New Testament is a significant theological move. Right. But it doesn't mean that the name Jesus comes the, from Yahweh. Exactly, exactly. And, and obviously Calvin is offended by this. He has yeah. some colorful language he uses <laughs> to, um, to refer to these folks. Um, and then here he claims that Christ came for the whole human race. Mm. Lots of Calvinisms here to restore them to life and that hope is for all humanity. So we get that because I've told you that Calvin has these glimpses of universal hope, mm-hmm. um, even pushing universal salvation, which we never associate with Calvin, but he says it quite a bit. He has this kind of vision of hope because Jesus has come for everybody. But it's the reality that not everybody responds, responds yeah, right? Yeah. He spends a good deal of time with total depravity here of humanity and notes that it is by Christ's expiation he offers to, free, to us free pardon, which exempts us from our fatal guilt and reconciles us with God. And secondly, that, quote, by sanctifying us in the Holy Spirit, we might live into righteousness. That's just pure Calvin. What do you mm-hmm. say? Um, mm-hmm. This promise, says Calvin, is openly extended to all, quote, who gather by faith into one body of the church. Mm. Yeah, of I course. mean, those are three Calvinisms that he stuffs right into the middle of this. Surely, surely. One final comment is how Calvin dealt with the virgin birth. In verse 22, he really takes the Jews to task who are mocking the idea of a virgin birth. And apparent, he has several pages on this. And apparently this is one of the big... Um, big arguments that the Jews have against that Jesus is the Messiah. And well, in fact, um, you know, the Septuagint was the primary Greek translation um, going into the first century. But at the end of the first century, the Jewish people made use of their own translations because the Septuagint had become the Bible of the early church. And so there are two different versions, Symmachus and Theodotion. And most versions of the, of the Septuagint will show some parallels where, where we have Symmachus and Theodotion to mm. reconstruct. But in Isaiah uh, 7.14, mm-hmm. where the Septuagint has Parthenos, which could be translated either young woman or virgin, mm-hmm. Symmachus and Theodotion have Neoniskas, the feminine mm. version, meaning young girl, and, and which can't, which could not be construed at all as as necessarily meaning virgin. Mm. And so they actually wrote their polemic into their version, uh, into their version of the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, as a you know as a way again of a sort of def, you know uh, um, sort of as a polemic against the Christian uh, message. Well, there you go. Yeah. So that's what he's responding to. Yeah. Yeah. And so he, he, he claims, yeah, again, that the, this word would not necessarily mean a virgin and spends a lot of, quite a lot of time justifying that this word would, word would indeed mean a virgin. Mm. Um, yeah, the, the Hebrew word there, Alma. Yeah, Alma. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't necessarily mean virgin. It, it, could be, it could be just any young girl. Uh, the presupposition may be that she was a virgin at the time that she uh, that that the that the that the um, the message was being spoken, but 
there's no suggestion of any miraculous conception in Isaiah seven fourteen. It just right, sounds right. like it sounds yeah. like it could even be Isaiah's wife. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So it does. Um, it does tell us that uh, at least our mainline reformers are very um, insistent on the virgin Surely. birth. Mm-hmm. That this is central to the theology of God with us. Well, I mean, for for de- for generations, it has been central to the affirmation that Jesus is divine, or right. Jesus is right. the Son of God. Calvin, of course, directly connects this to Emmanuel, God mm-hmm. with us. What is interesting is in 125, Calvin's discussion of whether or not Mary <laughs> remained a virgin or had children by her husband. In the Roman Catholic Church and today, the tradition of Mary being a perpetual virgin is, is part of the cultus. Mm-hmm. Um, but Calvin actually addresses it here. He does not take the Roman Catholic Church to task on this, but says that no one but of curiosity and a troublemaker would press it. <laughs> so he kind of leaves it open that she might have oh, had really? children later on. I mean, Luther doesn't ever debate this point from what I understand, although I think there's some more current literature that says maybe he had started to ask that question. Uh. But for Calvin, he leaves it pretty open. He's like, who asked that question? It doesn't say here. Matthew leaves it ambiguous. End of the story. <laughs> I've always found it strange because the Gospels speak very clearly of Mary and Jesus' brothers. I know. And, and, you know, it's like, well, who would they come from if, you know, I mean, in, the, in the Roman Catholic tradition, supposedly Jesus' brothers are actually half-brothers <laughs> by a previous marriage that Joseph had and all of yeah, this. Yeah, they make or up all Or they might have stuff. been cousins or something like that. Yeah, and, they, they make up all this other stuff around it. So I just thought that was an interesting point. And I could have gone a lot more on that, but I had plenty of other things to talk about. So. Yeah, thanks, Christy. Thank you. everybody we're back and um during our break we started to talk about some of the tradition in a church um and particularly you know some of the affirmations of of our our creed our nicene creed our apostles creed that you know all about this immaculate conception and um and yet was that the emphasis of our birth narratives or um is it really more on who Jesus is in other ways? So I think that's where we're going to emphasize our our uh, discussion. Yeah, and I think it's important because I think a lot of people who come to a passage like this read it through the lens of the last 2,000 years of church history and theology, and they read it as, oh, well, um, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That means he's the Son of God. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, I mean, you know, in more conservative circles, um, theologians and biblical scholars will, will really stress that, that it has to be that way, that mm-hmm. Jesus is born, is conceived by the Holy Spirit so that he can be the Son of God. The thing I find amazing, and, and it's just, it's one of those things that it, it's easy to overlook, but once you notice it, it's, it just stands out like a sore thumb, is that Apart from this connection with God with us, which to me seems to be a hint or a clue at best, the New Testament doesn't make a connection between Jesus' miraculous conception and his identity as Son of God. That, that's not where mm-hmm. it comes from. Uh, the, Jesus' identity as Son of God comes from, uh, I've said many times, the, the, new, the Christology of the New Testament is a functional Christology. So Jesus' identification in terms of the titles that he's given in the New Testament, that's based on what Jesus does. 
yeah, mm-hmm. you know, his his ministry, right. his healings, right. his death right. on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension. Not from it's this. all based on mm-hmm. it's all based on either what Jesus does or what happens to him. It's a far, very functional Christology and not um, a more of a I guess you would call it an ontological or right. a, a Christology of being uh, that that sort of uh, to me that idea that he's he has he's he's miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit that must lead to the fact that he's divine mm-hmm. and that's the way I mean I don't know about before the reform. But that was my first exposure to that theology is the reformers drew that connection that Jesus must be the son of God because he's conceived by the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And the New Testament doesn't make that connection. That's, but you said this was new to the reformers? or I don't know. I don't know that it was new to the reformers. No, I think it was. I think, it, say, I think, I think it was drawn I, up through the tr- tradition. I, I mean, I'm say, seeing that in terms of. Of the ancient creeds. I mean, I, yeah, and and I would say Augustine, and and I just I just I haven't traced it back that far myself. I've only traced it back to the Reformation. You know, that was sort of my first, oh, my earliest, what, what my you earliest were saying, exposure. You're, yeah. you're ex- I mean, to me, it seems to be embedded in. I think it is. Uh, in and I think it's embedded because so many of the early heresies had to do with mm-hmm. who Jesus was. In fact, I am not mm-hmm. so sure that Matthew and Luke didn't include emphasy narratives in part to combat some of the ancient myths that were going on around Jesus. They wanted to make sure that they had these pieces in here so that people would not question about, well, if he was, if he's, you know, if he's really divine, if he's really God, then man, he can't really be human. And some of those, some of those things, then the council of Nicaea is going to deal with. So I, well, and what I do know is that, um, for example, some of the early church fathers like Justin and Origen, they were in a situation of countering some of the early heresies yeah. and, and some of the early claims against Christianity. And they were the ones who took this, I would call it an apologetic turn in terms of their use of Scripture. And right. so they began to use proof texts right. to demonstrate their theology. Right. And and this is where the whole idea of fulfilled prophecy mm-hmm. came in is because they used the idea that that Matthew Matthew has this idea that Jesus fulfills the promise of of, of, of the prophets and, right. and of the of the Old Testament. Right. But it was the church fathers that came in and said, no, Isaiah predicted Jesus' right. birth, therefore it must have truly happened this way. Right. Well and it it's kind of taking me back to Mark, who doesn't start with an infant yeah, narrative, yeah. because it really is like you were talking about. If you look at Mark, it's what Jesus has done and what Jesus is well, and, and, doing. And when you look at the Christology of Paul, say, for example, Paul has a very robust Christology of Jesus as Son of God. He does not tie it to Jesus' miraculous right, conception. But Paul would have been before these were written. Surely. So what an interesting shift about the necessity to include it in the story. Well, and that's where you get sort of the developmental theory of a Raymond Brown mm-hmm. who's saying in the earlier text, you don't see this. What you see is Jesus as the Son of God being connected with his resurrection. Right. Uh, and then you find in all the Gospels a connection between Jesus' identity as Son of God and the baptism. And then only in Matthew and Luke do you have these, these stories about the miraculous mm-hmm, conception of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so that's where you come up with that developmental idea that this was a rather late view. I, I don't know that we have to necessarily go with that because, as I mentioned, you know right. there are some, right. some, some similar precedents in the Old Testament of, of prophets and, and servants of the Lord um, being, right. being chosen from the womb. Right. But um, you can see where they come up with that developmental notion. Well, you know, I got also thinking about... 
some of the tie-in, too, with Jesus' story compared to some of the Greco-Roman tradition right. with, the, with the kings and the king stories and the birth stories. They're the, often and, tied them to. And there are a lot of New Testament scholars who tie, tie that in. I, I think that's a bit of a non sequitur, in my opinion, because I think for the New Testament writers, the Hebrew Bible really played a much more influential role. I think... I think their exposure but to Greek literature. Writing, but if they're writing to to con- congregations that are both Hebrew and Gentile, maybe. Well, what what I would say, what I would point out is that in 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 Paul's letters, which are clearly to mixed Jewish Correct. and Gentile congregations, he has hundreds of quotations and allusions to the Old Testament to the Septuagint. He has maybe three citations of Greek writers. And so I I think that's a, that's an illustrative, you know, yeah, they were addressing an audience that may have been shaped by those Greek and Roman authors, Mm -hmm. but the new Testament writers themselves were much more influenced by the Hebrew Bible via the Septuagint. So that might be, that's always been an interest of mine. So, Mm -hmm. um, I really don't think that that the stories of of divine conception of of some of the uh, Greek and Roman heroes or kings had that much influence mm. on the New Testament. Although there is there is a significant sort of subsection of New Testament historians who who do who would, take who that, would point make that point they, they of view. They do take I that mean, point that, of view. To me, <laughs> you know, I've I've always run the world between the secular world because mm. that's where I was trained as a historian. So. I think there's probably a lot of secular historians that would would make those observations. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, so and it, they probably make decent arguments. I haven't mm-hmm. I haven't dug into it, but I other than just kind of a vague knowledge of it. But um, my point is, when you look at the actual way in which the New Testament authors develop their theology of Jesus as the Son of God, it's very much couched in Old Testament Hebrew Bible right, terms. Right, right. And, and in terms of and in terms of the life and ministry of Jesus. But again. Does it need to be there without the push of the Gentile space? Oh, I think so. It? I think so. I think I think it was an inherent logic to them of just the very nature of, of who Jesus was and the nature of his ministry. I think that was the logic. And 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 they, they so as again, my argument is not that not that the Hebrew Bible somehow predicted Jesus, right. but rather that the New Testament writers started with Jesus. They went back to the Hebrew Bible via the Septuagint right. in order to formulate their theology of who Jesus was, in order to formulate their Christology. Yeah, right. I I I, I get all that, but I don't know that it then necessarily negates this reach over to saying and the world that we're living in, which is so influenced, you know, we're, we're building, we're building Roman libraries everywhere. These people are all speaking Koine. These people are Greek. Surely, surely. These people are all familiar with these stories. Do we need to assert our King as being legitimate against mm, any mm. kinds of greco there's just, there's just no, no evidence in the New Testament of any significant influence by be, Greek literature. It wouldn't be in, well, I don't know. I, I don't know that it would be in there that way, even, even if they were writing it that way. I, I would expect to see much more evidence well, of, right. of influence right. from the Greek writers in the right. New Testament. But I, yeah. I think it's—I mean, I do think it's a—I do think it's a justifiable question if you look at the broad histories of 
of people and development at that age and, in that time frame. And there's a whole school of thought in New Testament studies. It's called the History of Religion School of Thought that really focused on this, that, that because the New Testament was written into the Greco-Roman world, that that, much, that influence must, must have spilled over to the New Testament writers. My point is... Show me the influence. I don't see it. There's, I mean, there's, you have, you have right. just overwhelming evidence that the Septuagint is influencing right. the, the writers of the New Testament, and you, you don't have any, hardly any, any evidence of influence uh, from, from Greek and Roman authors. Right. That's a, and that's a good point. I guess one of the things I could, a, could offer is you're trying to create this story you're, within the context. You're trying to use your own sources as maybe— you're not going to include that other stuff because you're trying to legitimize your own, your own historical identity, your own faith. This is the secular historian. The own uh, uh, opposed to them. You're not going to be talking about them. You're going to mm-hmm. be talking about your own. It'd be an interesting pushback. They're not going to use. Well, and, we're and, doing this because you know we want to we want to put Jesus up against Alexander the Great, right? right? I mean, which has no, this similar kind of story. And, and there are, as I said, there are a group of New Testament historians who would argue that 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 uh, the story of say of Alexander the Great or other divine men yeah, well, Augustus in, gets in, too, right? in, in, yeah. in the ancient uh, Greco Roman world influenced the New Testament writers. I, I've just, after, given my years of study, I have to say right. I'm not convinced because right. I, well, see, I, see, I see the influence of the Septuagint all over the place. Right. Well, yeah, again, but does that necessarily negate the choice that they made it to do it in the first place? I, I, the, 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 the people I've read, I, I have felt like they were straining to try to make that connection. <laughs> that, that's probably fair. And I'm pushing back, not because uh, I necessarily have bought into their argument, but mm-hmm. I thought it'd be an interesting point of discussion because you're going to mm-hmm. run into this. I've se- to me, it. I've seen people I've seen people try to make this argument, and to me it's like they're, they're taking a grid and they're overlaying it on the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I want to advocate for, especially like as we look at Matthew's gospel, is let's let Matthew speak for himself. Let's not impose either... Um, a later theological grid from the development of the creeds and the That's fathers yeah. or a or Greco-Roman, Greco-Roman grid. grid. Let, let's let Matthew speak for That's, himself. I like that. And, and so if we let Matthew speak for himself, what we hear is Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is son of David. Jesus is son of Abraham. Right. Jesus is the one who saves us from our sins. Mm-hmm. Jesus is God who is with us. Mm-hmm. These are the themes that Matthew right. is going to emphasize. Yeah. And, and, and you know, so, and, and even, and what we fought, we've, we've seen already as we've traveled through, through Mark and Luke, you know, Jesus defied all of the expectations of the various Judaisms of that day about the one who was to come. And so even though Matthew will use some of these traditional um, uh, titles, Messiah, son of David, mm-hmm. son of Abraham. Right, you right, know, right. Uh, nevertheless, Jesus is going to transform <laughs> what it means to say that Jesus is the Messiah. As I, mm-hmm. as I quoted from Gene Boring a couple weeks ago, you know, to, to say Jesus is the Messiah is both to say something about Jesus, but it's also to redefine what it means to be the Messiah. And right. Jesus is going to redefine, right, right, reshape right. that we by sh- his life and ministry. It, yeah. Which, yeah, 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 makes sense. So moving on from, from this kind of intellectual 
discussion, which is really fun, moving out to you know people believers today. Mm-hmm. Obviously, um, you know we are told to read scripture with the eyes of faith, mm-hmm. and so you can get all these other things going on if the faith isn't really how you're reading it. And sure. indeed, to ask why is Matthew writing this, and he's not writing it, and we do know he's not writing it for people that are staunchly. Um, you know, Roman, Greco-Roman aristocracy, unless, of course, they have converted, are, oh, converted right. right? You know, these people are, are that's not who it's for, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's for people that are, are have have become Jesus followers or, or, or are attracted to becoming Jesus followers, you know? And sure. Um, so I think that that helps us also maybe read it. Yeah. Okay. Okay, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.